Today's scripture is from 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 1 through 7. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan, and each of us get there a log, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, Go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, Take it up. So he reached out his hand, and he took it. This is the word of the Lord. It's great to see all of you here this morning. Uh, Merry Christmas, and I'm glad to, to see you all. This, the, next week, we're going to start a new sermon series, which we're calling the Sexy Sermon Series, uh, which is on sexuality, and it will be a four-part four series. I'm going to teach half of it, and we'll have some folks from Harvest USA who are also going to come and help uh, with, with some of that. So I encourage you um, to think about that topic. That was supposed to be a joke. You think about sex all the time. That's, sorry, it's cold in here. So uh, anyway, um, we're, starting, we're, we're going to look at a passage this morning, which um, is an odd one for post-Christmas, I know. Uh, this is actually a passage uh, from Second Kings. We taught, I taught through uh, the story of Elijah and Elisha, uh, Last fall, a year, a little over a year ago, and some of you uh, may remember, this is actually a sermon I never got to preach because of snow then, and I was beginning to think maybe there's something wrong with it. You know, like, I'm not going to be able to say this this morning either because of the snow coming. Um, so anyway, we're picking up this, and it's a great story, and it's a great, it's a, it's a really good um, story for us, passage for us to look at this morning for looking into the new year as well. Um, but let's be honest, it's a strange passage. You know, um, it reads kind of like a journal entry out of this, this guy's life, the prophet Elisha, you know, and you know, when you, if you're like me, you look at a passage like this and you say, okay, what is Bradford going to do with this? And I, I've said that about this passage. What am I going to do with this? I mean, what does this mean? Like, be careful when you borrow tools, you know, or don't let um, anybody who's like a pastor or something anywhere near a work site, you know, this is this is one of those passages that you could be like, I don't know what I'm supposed to get out of this. You know, an axe falls in the water and it rises to the top and there you go. Um, part of the problem when we read the Bible is that we come to it and a lot of us come to it and we say, what am I supposed to get out of this? How does this apply to me? Is there something, is there an example that I to be to be learned from this, is there something to be avoided from a passage like this? And actually, uh, the way we're supposed to come to the scripture is saying, who is God and what is God like? And that's actually what this passage very much concerns. What's God like? Who is God? You know, um, we have a phrase that's probably well known to many of you. Maybe you use this phrase. If you do any kind of work that's intricate, involves any details, is... Uh, has anything that's complex. We have this phrase that we say all the time, right? The devil is in the details. And this passage tells us 
No, no, God is in the details. That God is in the details. God call, uh, cares in this passage about the small and about the kind of inconsequential, really. You know, um, because God is in the details. You see, there's nothing earth-shattering about this event. Nobody's, there's no kingdom that's changed because this axe head is recovered. Nobody is brought to salvation. There's no great movement of God's people. There's nothing spectacular that happens. It's simply a little event, and God shows up. And, you know, I want to look at this with you because God didn't have to do this. God didn't have to rescue, have to do this. And, I, and I, I think it challenges the way I think most weeks, probably the way that you think as we walk through our lives and we deal with the details, the devil in the details. And I want us to think about God's kindness this morning. And I'm going to give you a warning because at the end of this sermon, I'm going to throw you a curveball and I'm going to ask for a little bit of audience participation. I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond as a community to God's kindness. So let's jump in. Let's look at this simple story. Five points, but very brief ones this morning. First, God cares about simple things. The simple needs. You know, can you imagine the scene? It's a, there's a seminary. It's a group of prophets. And they've outgrown their, their current place where they're meeting. They're too tight. And so they decide, hey, let's go build something else. And so they go and ask their, their teacher. They go ask Elisha, who is the head of the school. And he says, okay. And then they say, would you come with us? And they say, okay. So they go down by the Jordan River and they're cutting wood. Chopping down trees. We don't know how many days this was into it. But as they're chopping trees, one guy is swinging especially hard, and he swings back, and the axe head comes off the end of the axe, flies into the river. You know, and as he watches this thing sink into the water and down, drop down, his heart sinks because this isn't his own. This is something borrowed. This is something that doesn't belong to him. And he's, frankly, it's, it's something that he's, you know, upset about. And so... You know, you see him, he immediately says, now Elisha, the man of God, was there. You see this in verse 6. Why does it say the man of God? I mean, throughout this passage, throughout this book, we've, we've, if you'd been tracking through the first six chapters, you would have known who Elisha was. But the emphasis here on Elisha, the man of God, isn't the emphasis, it's not emphasis on Elisha, it's emphasis on God. God is here. God is here in this simple need. You know, God is here, and you see what God does. I mean, it's, it's a miracle story, right? The, the laws of physics are bent. You know, gravity. You know, somehow, the stick is thrown in the water, and the axe head, which should always sink, floats. Now, what's funny about this is a generation ago, as I would have preached this passage, I would have had to say, let's talk about miracles, Let's talk about, you know, and people would have said, what is this? You know, you, you believe that axe heads can float, and, you know, you believe all these kind of crazy stories about God become man. You know, a generation ago, that's what we would have been talking about this morning. But I find that, like, today's generation, you know, we're not people who really struggle with the impossible. Oscar Wilde once wrote, a man can, man can believe the impossible, but not the improbable. The British author um, Douglas Adams said it this way. He said, the impossible often has a kind of integrity to it to which the merely improbable lacks. See, the impossible is not that hard for people to believe. The improbable is much more difficult. 
The impossible in this is the, is the miracle, right? The impossible for us is, you know, God caused an axe head to float. Here's the improbable. Here's what's really hard for us to believe. God cares. That God cares about the simple needs. See, you and I live in a world where we, we say, this is a kind of rough place. You know, things don't work out. It appears sometimes that God is cold and callous. That he is removed. He doesn't care about us. And so, for a lot of people coming to this passage, it's like, axe head floating, no biggie. God caring about simple things? Yeah, I have a hard time believing that. The evidence, to me, is much more piled up against God caring than it is about an axe head floating. I could buy that one. You know, why is it so hard for us to believe? You know, some of you have been Christians a long time. Some of you have been in the church around Christian people a long time. You know, and you're okay with the impossible. You really are. You read the Bible, and you don't even blink at some of these miracle stories. But you wrestle. This, the events of your past year, you look at them and say, kindness of God? I'm having a hard time buying that one right now. I'm having a hard time tracking with this improbable notion that God really is in the details. But listen, God doesn't just care about the simple needs. He cares about the real needs of his people. You know, in this story, the axe head sinks in the river. And, you know, for us, we say, what's the big deal? You can go right down the street here at 20th and Fairmount and buy another axe for about 15 bucks at the hardware store, Ace Hardware. What's the big deal? Well, this is, this is right about two centuries into the Iron Age. And Israel wasn't that techno- technologically savvy as a nation. And so to actually be able to make an axe was a incredibly difficult process you have to you have to first you have to get the ore you have to smelt the ore you have to cut down a huge number of trees to build a fire hot enough and then you have to shape and sharpen this thing and israel frankly was not that good at it and that's what uh, biblical history shows us you know israel they were kind of behind everybody else and so this was not just like hey i borrowed something and i lost it this was an incredibly expensive item This was an incredibly expensive item. And so this man, when he turns and he's distraught and he says to Elisha, can't you do something about this? This is not a man who's like, hey, I'd really like an axe for Christmas, thanks. This is something that is incredibly expensive. He's going to go into major debt over and he has no ability to replace. He's not even asking for it for himself. He'd like to have this back for the person he borrowed it from. And you see, this is a real need. This is a real need. It's a genuine need. It's a, it's a real concern. Listen. Listen to these passages. Listen to some of these words from Scripture that describe who God is and what He is like. You need to hear these things. You need to be reminded. This is the kind of trust in God's character that the Bible urges us toward. It says things like this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with thanksgiving, make your petitions known to God. Or... My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Or you keep, this is a a dialogue with God. God, you keep in perfect peace him, he who trusts in you, he whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. He is a rock. Or cast your cares on him. Cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You know, 
Of course, the problem is that we have very different ideas, of course, about our, what our needs are, our real needs are, than God. But these are truths. God cares for our genuine needs. He is not ambivalent. So how do you express your trust in God? You know, tomorrow morning, your car may not start. Is that worth praying about? You know, tomorrow, tomorrow your washing machine may break down because you've like, you, and you've stockpiled all this laundry. I'm not going to do this laundry throughout December. It's all ready to go. You've got five, five loads ready to go, and the washing machine breaks. Is it worth praying about? The heater breaks. Is it worth praying about? You know, your job becomes dangerously close to falling off the precipice of the recession. Are these things worth praying about? And then the ordinary, the mundane. Does God care? Does God care enough for you to take these things to Him and say, God, really? Can you do something about this? Remember Oscar Wilde's words, man can believe the impossible, but not the improbable. I find that many of us are people who can say, yeah, I believe in Jesus Christ that he died and was raised from the dead. But when it comes down to the improbable fact that I can't handle my own existence, I can't handle daily life, I struggle. Because, you know what, we sort of all believe that functionally we should be able to do this thing. We should be able to keep going. Your life should be able to work. And we, when our lives fall apart, when things don't work, we're shocked. We're appalled. How can it be? I'm not, a, I'm not an independent person who can hold it all together. The improbable fact that the Bible tells us is you can't. You're not designed to do it. You don't have the shoulders it takes to even run your own life. That's the improbable. That's what's hard for us to grasp. You don't... Listen to the improbable fact that, you know what? God cares for your real needs. Isn't it worth praying? Isn't it worth looking to him and saying, God, I can't. I can't keep going. And I need you right here, right now. Third thing we see here, God cares in advance of our needs. You know, you see what's going on in this story when the man is, has swung back and the axe head falls off, he looks around and the man of God, Elisha, is standing right there beside him. He's standing right there. God is already prepared for this, this accident to happen. You know, God is already, he's not shocked. He's like, oh no, where's Elisha? He's off taking a nap. We gotta get him. He's standing right there. He's standing right there and he's ready in advance of the need. You know, have you found this with God? That, you know, we, are, we find ourselves in places of dire emergency and crisis for us. And yet God doesn't seem to be all that surprised. He doesn't seem to be all that shocked or worried or worked up. He's already got things under control. You know, for those of you who are Christians, think about this. Think about this. When Christ died on the cross, he did much more. He did so much more than just pay for your sins. Than just give you a, a one-way ticket to heaven. What does he do? He brings you into a family. He also does things like this. He, 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 he makes sure that you have all the rights and privileges of a son or a daughter of the Most High God. 
You know, what father kind of sits by and watches as his children struggle and flounder? You know, I have my four-year-old, uh, Ezra, he drops a stuffed animal under his bed, and I am, as his father, I'm, I'm like, I'm, my heart moves toward this kid, even though I don't want to get up off the couch, even though all I want to do is, like, sit there and play on my computer or do whatever I'm doing. But because of this child, I will get up off the couch, I'll go pull out the bed, I'll go find the stuffed animal, and I'll give it back to him. Heavenly Father, how much more? Scripture reminds us, these kind of statements, how much more? How much more, a Heavenly Father? You know, here too is the depth of God's care for us. Everything that you need for life and godliness is already given to you because of Jesus Christ. This is where I think this is a good New Year's Eve, New Year's sermon. Okay, this is my last one for for, uh, 2010, so I'm going to give you the New Year's message right now. And I could give you, like, you know, the whole world does kind of New Year's resolutions, whether we articulate them or not. So we say things like this, next year I'm going to lose some weight. Next year I'm going to exercise some more and eat less. Next year I'm not going to buy stupid things that I don't really need. Next year I'm going to call my mom on Sundays. You know, we come up with these things. But do resolutions work? No, because we'd all be skinnier and richer if they did. Right? And a lot of kind of New Year's sermons from pastors are like, you take the New Year's resolution and you baptize it, okay, and you serve it up and say, okay, this next year I want you, you know, like we're going to all read our Bibles together, right? You know, this next year we're all going to pray. I'm going to challenge you. I want you to do the unresolution this year, okay? I'm going to ask you to think about doing the un-New Year's resolution. Here's how it goes. Instead of thinking about what you're going to do for the next year, why don't you start looking for what God is doing? Here's my challenge to you. Write a faith journal this next year. Get a spiral-bound notebook and write three columns, okay? And just write down little notes. Every time you see God's faithfulness, write it down in one column. Every time you see God's kindness, and every time you see God answer prayers, I I dare you to do this. You know, this isn't about what you're doing. This is about looking for God's fingerprints in this world. Does he care about our real needs? Does he care about our simple needs? Is he present with his people? Yes. How come we don't look for those things? How come we're always looking for the lacks, ways that God's not shown up, the way that this world confirms our cynicism and our despair? God cares about an axe head. Don't you think he cares about you? Isn't he kind? You may not have eyes to see it. That's why you've got to train yourself. That's why I challenge you to do this. You know, um, this is true for... I, I've had to... I've had to eat the own, my own supper that I've already prepared for you guys this week. You know, uh, we have had this heating issue with the Brian. You know, and this week, it didn't look like that stuff was going to work for the heat to be on for Friday night or for Sunday. And you can see we're still supplementing it. But, you know, and I'm sweating this. You know, I, the heater's not working. And Bradford's all worked up. I mean, I was really sweating this thing. And, you know, I was really anxious over this. And I kept telling myself true verses from the Bible, some of the ones I gave you. And, you know, 
Lo and behold, Jesus shows up. Jesus and Martin. Thanks, Martin. But, you know, he really did. And I've had to kind of eat a lot of crow this week. I'm standing up for you as somebody who's, I struggle with this. This is hard for me. But I want to invite you with me to begin looking for ways that God is actually faithful. Fourth, God cares for his own people, his own church in dark times. God cares for his church in dark dark times. Look, this passage was not just written to like individuals sitting in metal chairs. The first people who got this, who heard these words, were people who were in bondage in Babylon. They had been, this is several hundred years later, they had been carried off into exile and were far from home, far from their language, and other people like them, and far from their temple. And they were in despair. And they were saying, has God forgotten us? Does God even care anymore? We're so far away. Everything seems like it's a big... Everything's coming up lost on our side. You know, does God care? And, you know, this passage would have been a great source of encouragement to them. Do you know why? If you've been reading through 2 Kings and you read through chapter 5, right before this, this is what happens. Passage before this, Elisha has just had this great encounter with this Syrian general. He's healed him, and his Elisha's servant, Gehazi is his name, goes and tries to like extort some money from this guy. And he shows himself, even though he's been with Elisha all this time, he shows himself to be kind of a crook. And Elisha painfully has to dismiss him. Here's a guy who's been walking with him, who's been central to what's been going on, And sort of the question in everybody's head is, what happens next? Does everything fall apart at this point? And, you know, we see some encouragements from this passage. And this is what, if you could, I know this is hard, but if you can put yourself in the mindset of the people who first heard this, people who are in captivity, who were like saying, these are dark times. And they would have said, they would have had several words of encouragement. They would have said, look, Gehazi is gone, and yet the number of the of these prophets, these people, God's people who are gathered, is expanding so much they have to go get a new facility. God must be doing something. And they would have looked at this and they would have said, you know, God can take what may look like an essential person out of the equation. And he's still faithful. He's still able. You know, this is encouraging. You know, how often does the church look to other people like the axe head? You know, it's sunk in the water. Looks like curtains for that. And God shows himself over and over to be faithful. You know, it looks like dark days. Everybody's pronouncing, like, this is it. You know, every time when God seems to remove things, or things happen that seem like a blow to the church, essential people are removed from ministry, there seem to be incredible uphill battles that the church has to face, God shows up. An example of that from this past year, some of you know our sister congregation, Liberty East. And they had um, been in a a process last winter of trying to get a new building. Um, They were trying to get a long-term lease on a warehouse in the Fishtown neighborhood. And so they had gone through all this stuff with this developer who was kind of outfitting this space. And apparently it had to go before zoning in the neighborhood uh, and there had to be a neighborhood approval of this process. 
So everybody who lived around this warehouse uh, from the neighborhood shows up at this meeting. And it is a terrible meeting. And these people are like, we don't want any church in our neighborhood. No thanks. No more Christians here. Thank you very much. And things go from bad to worse. And, you know, the folks at Liberty East were sweating it. And we were sweating it for them. We're like, is this the end? What's going to happen? Things look dark. And, you know, as they walk through stuff, they come to this zone, this one zoning meeting, okay? And they're having this discussion, you know, these people are all raising their hands. We don't want any more, we don't want this church. And this lady who doesn't go to Liberty East, who runs a tattoo parlor down the street, stands up and she's like, now, now wait a second, let me get this straight. You people, you're okay with having the motorcycle gang down the street that kills people, but you don't want the Christians to come in who clean up the park and help take care of kids. Can you explain to me what's going on here? And it was that lady's words that shifted the entire public opinion. Now, why did this happen? You know, everybody's sweating. What's going on? Is God, you know, is this the end of Liberty East? You know what? They got so much good PR and goodwill that changed within that neighborhood. The news about what that church was about and what Jesus was about got out. And what the rest of us were, I, I was sitting there going like, this is terrible. And yet God was faithful in dark times with his people. God showed up. Last one. God cares for your ultimate need. You know, I want to finish by addressing those of you who are here this morning. And you might say, look, you know, um, I'm, I'm sort of on board with this Jesus stuff. I'm sort of on board with this um, Christianity message. But I'm not really there with like throwing my lot entirely in. I'm not sure I really want to submit myself to this God. I wouldn't call myself a Christian. You might, you might even be a person who, if someone said, you know, Jesus was a liar, you would take them on. You would defend him. You would say, no, this is what's really true. And, you know, you would, you would say these things, but here's encouragement for you. Because you are like the man in this story. See, you have got something that's borrowed that is in danger of being lost. Your life is on loan. Your faculties, you know, the gifts that you've been given, the education that you have, your physical body, your mental capacities, those creative gifts that you can't explain where they came from, those were on loan from God. Those just didn't happen. God has given you those things. He's given you your own life. It's on loan. It's borrowed. It's not yours. And this is what we find in this passage. Look, this is... You're in danger. This is fallen in the river. And it's in danger of being sunk and lost. It's in danger of being, you know, sunk and lost. If you haven't placed your life in God's hands, if you haven't said, God, I am yours because you've said you're mine, then look, you're in the same predicament this man is in, that he finds himself in. And you should be sweating it. You should be saying, man of God, Jesus, what will you do? Can you help me? Because no one can sit in this kind of philosophical median point and say, I kind of like Jesus. I just don't know about if I really want him entirely in. You can't stay there. The axe head, your life is sinking. And the Bible tells us that there was 
a stick that was thrown. There was Jesus thrown upon a cross so that our lives might be redeemed, might be brought up from the pit. That Jesus might rescue us from our great soul danger. You know, be like this man. I urge you, be like this man and say, God, man of God, help me. You know, some of you may feel like the axe head. You're like, I am too far gone. My life has been sinking away. You may look at your circumstances. You may feel like, man, my life is nothing but the bottom of the muddy Jordan River, and that's the right place for it. I've made so many stupid mistakes. I've done so many stupid things. You know, I don't even know if I have the courage to cry out to God in this circumstance. And yet, look, this is a God who shows himself to be full of kindness for sinners. Full of of generosity, he moves toward us. He already has provided in Jesus everything that you need. I urge you, move toward him. Now look, as I said at the beginning of the sermon, I'm going to give an opportunity for some audience participation here at the end. And I want to invite you, we're going to bow our heads, and I want to invite you to spend some time, take a minute or two, and think about this year. Think about 2010 as we watch it wind to a close, and you look over like some of you, what has been a very hard year, and you're going to be glad to say goodbye to 2010. Some of you have said, this is a great year. But I want to give you an opportunity uh, to give credit to God for his kindness and his faithfulness. And so we're going to pray, and I'm going to invite, nobody's going to see who else is praying, but we're going to bow our heads, and I want to invite you where you are to stand. You don't have to say a lot, but to tell Jesus thank you for his kindness, for his simple provision, for his being in the details, for his provision of Jesus Christ who came and died for us and was raised again. I want to invite you all to have an opportunity to respond to this. We're going to silently reflect for about a minute or two, and then I'm going to call us to pray. I'm going to invite you to stand where you are and pray loud enough that we can hear, and then I'll close us after a time. Father, we honor you. Give us eyes to see in this next year your kindness and your faithfulness and your provision. Lord, help our unbelief. Help us who live in fear and who don't trust you most of the time, and are much more quick to believe that we should be able to handle this alone. We thank you, Lord, because of Jesus, we know that you've drawn near to us, and your benediction, your blessing is on us because of him. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to live out of that faith and boldness, and trusting in your goodness and your kindness to us in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.